All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATAS, your Priests in Space speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode is the third in our series on Isaac Asimov's truly awesome and also truly majorly influential masterpiece novel, Foundation, which was originally published in 1951. This bonus series, all of the episodes have been brought to you by one of our really fantastic Patreon supporters who commissioned it. And as always, of course, I want to say thank you so much for that, both for the financial support of the network, which is very important to us, but also for the nudge to do this project, which has been so so awesome and so fun for me. And as I will be, as I have been for this entire series, I am joined on this episode by my lifelong friend, Jay Deal. Jay is a medieval historian at Long Island University. And, you know, really what that means today is that he's going to be doing most of the heavy lifting on this episode. So, uh, Jay, welcome back to the show. Happy to be back. So, all right, this is the third episode, and hey, that means we're talking about part three, which is called The Mayors. And although it is the third part of the novel, it was actually the second part that Asimov wrote. As we've talked about, part one is actually the last part that he wrote. And so this part was published in Astounding Magazine as a standalone story in 1942, where it was called Bridal and Saddle. It was the the June issue that year. The previous uh, part, part two, the Encyclopedist, had been published in May. So these really were published back to back in 1942. But of course, as we've been doing, we're taking the text from the novel version of the story. And to get into it, Jay's going to give us a synopsis of part three, and then uh, we'll get started on our discussion. All right. Arguably the craziest part of Foundation as a story overall. Part three, The Mayors. We open 30 years after Salvar Hardin's coup against the encyclopedists. The Galactic Empire is now a distant memory. Hardin, still the protagonist of this section of Foundation, doesn't even know who or if there is an emperor at this point. Terminus is instead surrounded by four kingdoms carved out of former imperial prefects, and Anacreon is the most powerful of them. We'd sort of been introduced to it in part two. Hardin, at home on Terminus, is facing criticism for his policy of giving scientific aid, mostly in the form of nuclear power, to these four kingdoms as part of a long-term strategy of sort of playing them off each other to keep Terminus secure. But the kingdom's growing strength is starting to pose a serious threat to Terminus. Um, In what seems designed at the time to be a throwaway line, there's a council member meeting with Hardin who accuses him of embedding science in, I quote, outrageous mummery. (laughs) This, he means the form of religious rituals and a hierarchy of nuclear priests who are trained at Terminus and then dispatched to the four kingdoms to run the nuclear energy plants. Hardin dismisses this as merely a strategy for getting the barbarians, as he refers to them, of the four kingdoms to sort of accept science. But there are continued references to the important role of these science priests and the extent to which religion has taken hold on Anacreon, which suggests that something more might be afoot here. Meanwhile, on Anacreon itself, the young King Lepold is about to come of age, but his uncle Venus is perhaps scheming to take power because this is what the uncles of underage's kings always do. An attack on Terminus, which is at this point largely undefended, seems to be part of this plot, and it gains steam when Terminus grants them possession of a restored Imperial battlecruiser, which becomes the flagship, effectively, of the Anacreon Navy. 
Salvador Hardin travels to Anacreon to celebrate King Leopold's birthday, where Venus informs him that he has already sent an invasion fleet to Terminus, which is set to strike with nuclear blasts as soon as it arrives, and declares that Hardin is his prisoner of war. But Hardin, who is always a step ahead, reveals that his counterplan is already in motion as well. Anacreon has been placed under interdict. The nuclear priests have gone on strike and the populace is being informed that the center of their religion is under assault. All of the technology on Anacreon grinds to a halt. The populace begins to riot and a priest on board the Anacreon flagship pronounces a curse upon it and forces its commander to publicly broadcast a confession of the Navy's sacrilege. Venus's plot is foiled in the end. And on the 80th anniversary of the Foundation's creation, Harry Seldon's vault opens again and congratulates the assembled people on their mastery of the spiritual power put in all capital capitalized words in the novel to overcome the temporal power, but warns of further crises ahead that the spiritual power will be unable to overcome. Yeah, we're going to talk about that, of course, though that's uh, sort of more <laughs> near the end of our outline today. So yeah, you, you said the craziest section of this novel, which I think is totally true. But and what you mean by that, right, is that, holy crap, there's a lot of plot <laughs> There's so much yeah, plot. Yeah, there's a lot of plot in this section. Yeah. We, in part two, I think we spend an hour and a half just talking about microfilm because, well, that's what the story was about. And yeah, now suddenly, exactly. yeah, we've got dynastic politics. We've got, you know, assassination, royal assassinations. We've got uh, mutinies on ships. There's espionage. There's, you know, starting a secret religion or, or starting a religion that is actually like there's geopolitics. There's multiple political parties on Terminus, yeah. right? There's internal political strife. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So much to do here in, in this episode. Maybe let's just start by bantering a, a little bit about the, the new characters that we meet. It is interesting, right, that we're only 30 years in the future and our point of view character is a character that we had in the, the second part. And I actually guess, of course, by the time this episode is actually going out, you and I will know because the TV show will be out and we will have been watching it. But my guess, as we're recording this months ahead of time and having not seen the trailer because I'm a person who uh, religiously, uh, according to the spiritual power, does not watch trailers. I do not want to be spoiled that way. I but know. My assumption- I always try to talk about them with you and you've never watched them. <laughs> it's so true. But my guess is this is the part that's being adapted into the TV show and probably only this part would yeah. be my, my guess. But things that are interesting here, the new characters are all on Anacreon. It's actually where really the action is taking place, where we've got all this cool stuff. So yeah, you you pointed out in the, the synopsis there, Jay, that these people are called barbarians, which I just don't think is a word that we've had uh, crop up, uh, certainly not as much in the first two parts. And then that goes hand in hand with the fact that the names that we have for people on this planet, uh, you know, really the, the two people that matter are the, the you know, on the cusp of adulthood, you know, King, uh, Leopold or Leopold, and then his uncle, the regent, Venus, that these are Germanic names as well. Absolutely. Clearly an intentional decision to sort of provoke the idea of these kind of non-Roman Germanic peoples or something like this. And it is the first time that the word barbarian, as far as I can tell, has been used um, in the novel. We talked in our first episode, I think, about the fact that although this is a story about the 
fall of a galactic Roman Empire, there really has been no sense of invading barbarians or anything like that or or sort of external forces pushing in. But nonetheless, now this kind of discourse of barbarians has appeared to talk about the residents of these four uh, kingdoms that have been carved out of the former galactic empire. Right. And and we should talk about the the timeline here, I, I guess, really just to, to get ourselves situated, since really the whole point of this novel and the whole series is to march us through time, right? The, the main character of the whole Foundation series is, you know, this civilization, right? That's the main character. And so where are we at in the progression, the sort of character arc of the timeline, I guess, right? So part two was 50 years after the establishment of the Foundation on Terminus. But part three, as we've said, is 30 years after that. So just to do some simple math, which is never simple for me, but some simple math, yeah. hey, we're 80 years into this story. And so, yeah, let's let's check in. Let's try to reconstruct the, the timeline. So Leopold is the, the grandson of a king. He's the son of another. So this has gone father to father to father. But Leopold is young. He's only just now becoming and an adult. And so my understanding is that Anacreon declared its independence just about 30 years ago. It might've been a little bit before that, right? As we're getting into, you know, part two, that's kind of the the news, but we don't maybe know how long it's taken for that news to get to, to Terminus, right? But that was the inciting incident of part two. And so this is really where I want to check in with you, Jay, just to make sure that I'm understanding that we're on the same page. It was Leopold's grandfather. He was the prefect who declared himself king. And then... Correct. Okay. So, and then he... I think we're supposed to understand that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think there's a line that, that does make that clear, but we don't get any dates for any of this or like lengths of reigns and that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, but I, my understanding then is I guess that he ruled then, you know, not no longer as prefect, but now as king for like 10 or 20 years. Then his son took over, but his son died, you know, prematurely because he was assassinated by his younger brother, who is Venus, who's the regent here. Yes, by a needle, a bullet, needle bullet, whatever that is. Well, yeah, exactly. Whatever that is. Yeah. Well, this was, yeah. I mean, this is a cool story. I had a really hard time reading this without just thinking this is Game of Thrones. Yeah, <laughs> and so, for sure. And so this definitely, you know, I just had all of the actors from Game of Thrones. Like, this was like Joffrey and, you know, his yeah. grandfather was sort of what I was seeing here as as Leopold and uh, his uncle Venus here. It was, it was, uh, unfortunately, I don't think they have actually been cast in these roles. So that would have been perfect. I mean, this is definitely Asimov playing with the idea of medieval dynastic politics, um, you know, of the sort that you would find sort of during the early Middle Ages. Um, and that certainly um, Martin is playing with, especially, I mean, his is more early modern dynastic politics. But definitely the, this is sort of Asimov playing with the idea of family dynastic politics here. Yeah. And in fact, I think that we should think now about where we are, you know, or what, where is the analog, right? Where historically is actually the analog for where we are. So like, if we're just going by dates, then, or, you know, or length of time, like how much time has passed between yeah. each of these parts, then we're somewhere, I guess, between 500 and 530, maybe depending on where we're actually marking the beginning of the Middle Ages and the fall of Rome. Yeah. But by generation of kings, right? By saying like, well, we're the at the grandson of the first king of these new states, then, you know, that range could 
change depending on where we're actually talking about in the Roman Empire, the Western Roman Empire, you know, which which area of it, right? In parts of France and Spain, also North Africa, then, you know, three generations in, we're still actually well before the year 500. Yeah. Uh, answering this question in Italy, just way complicated. So I'm just going to ignore it. <laughs> you know, yeah, so let's just not get it. into that. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, I have to think, right? And and, and maybe you'll disagree, but I, I, I have to think that Asimov has in mind France, right? That he's, and, and, you know, of course, obviously, right, by by France, I mean the Franks who give us the name France yeah, instead Frankia, of Gaul, right? Frankia, yeah. <laughs> right, and and the Franks are one of these barbarian groups, though they're also soldiers in the Roman army. They're the the king of the Franks is also a general of the Roman army. We actually uh, have the the tomb of the father of the person who is generally regarded as being the first king of France. That's Clovis, who um, died in 511. It was in power more or less, you know, 480 to his death in 511. But his father, who also bore the title king of the Franks, uh, also, like Clovis himself did, had some kind of Roman military rank. And we actually, I say we, meaning, you know, scholars, uh, found his tomb. I mean, this was centuries ago, actually, in uh, in yeah. Turni, in uh, northern Gaul, we'll say, and found really, really cool stuff there. And essentially, he's in a Roman military uniform, but then also has some stuff that we would associate with uh, you know, Germanic culture or barbarian culture. All of that's contentious to say, but we'll just pitch it that way. Yeah. Um and so, you know, if we're thinking about these types of people, then, and and I think really we would probably be thinking of Leopold's grandfather, Venus's father as Clovis, then I guess we're probably looking at the analog here as sometime between the 540s and 560s when the grandsons of Clovis were in power. I, I don't know. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. I mean, uh, as a strict sort of chronological reading, yeah, I, I think that's probably right. Um, the, the kingdom is young. Um, it's newly adopting a new religion. Or it's sort of just recently adopted a new religion. It's still sort of vying with these other kingdoms um, in some sort of balance of power game out there. Um, and so it, it has a lot of the hallmarks of the, you're, you're right, kind of the sixth, maybe into the seventh century or something like that um, in terms of its proximity to um, the Galactic Empire and to some of the processes that are going on, the, the, the sort of consolidation of kingships. Um, the kind of figuring out of religious traditions and things like that. It's interesting that there's so little discussion and so little interested in the kind of cultural fusions that we that we see um, going on in Francia between sort of the Roman past and the barbarian past, which we think of as kind of one of the hallmarks of this period. Um, very little indication or very little concern with the kind of cultural situation of Anacreon other than this newly emergent nuclear religion. Well, yeah, because the the rulers of Anacreon were also it's the same exact people who were the rulers when the, the empire was there. So that's one of the real features of this that's so different from you know the the actual fall of Rome and you know even the sort of really strong narratives uh, in the way that like Gibbon presents it is that yeah there's no barbarians even as Asimov is actually adopting all of the imagery. Yeah, because these people have become barbarians. They're, they're barbarians not by the fact of the simple fact that they're not Romans, you know, not cultural outsiders or anything, but because of this technological regression that they have underwent, right? It's as if the Romans have people who were part of the Roman Empire, like lost something and devolved into barbarians, kind of a charged term there in some ways. But this is sort of the idea Asimov is playing with, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. In in 
the actual you know history of Earth, <laughs> what happens here is that these barbarian groups, most of them, as we talked about in the first episode, are in some way units in the Roman army. And when that arrangement yeah. is initially made, they really are outsiders who speak a different language, have different clothing and, and food customs and cultures, uh, different religion in some sense. So, well, that's a little complicated, but different religion in some sense. But by taking over the government of some of these, you know, regions of the Roman Empire, these people become more Roman. But the opposite is happening here for Asimov. Exactly. Exactly. Very interesting that that sort of the process here is not that of barbarians becoming Romans, but Romans becoming barbarians. Yeah, it is very cool. There's, uh, I mean, well, I think as we've been saying, there's an entire monograph to be written actually about what Asimov is is doing here. We just need to find a, a publisher for that, but uh, we'll try to get on that. But yeah, if you're listening, yeah, yeah. if you're listening, please, please contact <laughs> us. Uh, something that has occurred to me while we've been talking is that this definitely has to be Gaul that we're thinking of here, right? Anacreon is. One kingdom of four in this larger, uh, you know, province. I, I guess we'll say that has has fragmented into into these four parts. And actually, that's exactly the number that we would have for Gaul if we're talking about five twenty. We have the Franks controlling the the north uh, under their king Clovis, and then. In East Central Gaul, like uh, around the River Rhone, there are the Burgundians. And around 510, both of these states had really just expanded their territory southward. Uh, the Franks significantly more than the Burgundians, but both of them had expanded their territory southward. And they did this at the expense of the Visigoths, who had been controlling all of Western and Southern Gaul for, for decades, some parts of it for, for nearly a century. And then also as part of this war, the Ostrogothic state, which is based in Italy, uh, this state takes over control of southeastern Gaul, like around the city of, of Arles, uh, down to the coast. And also, and I think I often forget this when I'm thinking of like, what is the picture of Gaul at this time? But Brittany, that far northwestern uh, peninsula, is independent in some way. We actually have very little idea of what, what is going on there. It's actually something I think is quite interesting. But really, the point of all of this, right? The point is that, hey, Gaul used to be a single administrative unit, and now it's fragmented. And also now, war among those fragments is endemic. And that is exactly what is happening out here in the Four Kingdoms, right? So that is really what Asimov is thinking of. Yeah, I agree with that. Although so many, I mean, we can talk more about this. So many of the features that he is illustrating here uh, are are things that would be drawn from much later in the Middle Ages. There's hints of events that we associate with sort of the 1100s, the 900s and things like this. And I do think that in some ways what Asimov has done in this section of the book is create an almost kind of, I don't know what word to use for it, almost like a syncretic medieval period or something like that, where he's taken what he considers to be the most important hallmark features of the Middle Ages, the era we refer to of the Middle Ages, and almost condensed them, almost flattened them out into sort of one moment in time in some ways. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, that Asimov is giving us here part three. This is just kind of like the Middle Ages proper, even though he's setting it only 30 years you know, after the fall of Rome. And 
we actually get, there's a bit of world building that he does here. Let me just actually read this passage. And I'll remind the audience here that we are using the Every Man's Library edition. And so this is on page 74 of that. Here's how Asimov summarizes the current conditions. For 30 years now, since the breakup of communications here at the edge of the galaxy, the whole universe of Terminus had consisted of itself and the four surrounding kingdoms. How the mighty had fallen. Kingdoms! They were prefects in the old days, all part of the same province, which in turn had been part of a sector, which in turn had been part of a quadrant, which in turn had been part of the all-embracing galactic empire. And now that the empire had lost control over the farther reaches of the galaxy, these little splinter groups of planets became kingdoms, with comic opera kings and nobles and petty, meaningless wars, and a life that went on pathetically among the ruins. So one of the things that we see there immediately is uh, how much Star Trek has borrowed this language from yeah. governing, you know, like a spacefaring civilization. But let's uh, let's break this down and compare this to, well, one, the sixth century, and then maybe we can go back to your point about, hey, about how this like really actually feels a lot more like the high middle ages. But, you know, so one of the claims that he makes here is fragmentation into several states. We've really just talked about that, you know, already, but then we also get petty, meaningless wars. And that's a bit rude, I think, right? That's awfully subjective. That's a bit rude, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, they may seem small scale and maybe narratively insignificant in the story of, you know, how things got this way, like how we got here. But hey, you know, this is still people killing each other. People are dying in these things. So they had meaning and were not petty for the people who lived through them. But, you know, I think his point really is right that war is endemic in this period. And and that's definitely true. Yeah. These wars here in the early Middle Ages, the sixth century in particular, are fought, you know, in Gaul especially, are fought largely over control of cities. When we read about them in, in narrative histories, and we do have a really great narrative history of the sixth century written uh, near the end of that century by a guy named Gregory of Tours, who I guess was a guy named Gregory who lived in Tours, maybe, you know, but we call him Gregory of Tours. In uh, and, and those narrative histories, right, largely what this seems to be about, all of the fighting, seems to be really a way of settling inheritance disputes, which maybe to us does seem petty. I mean, maybe it seems petty to us, but, you know, inheritance disputes at the time would have been not sort of what we think of as modern day inheritance disputes. Who gets the most money? They're effectively political contests. Um, you know, who's going to get to be in charge of a quote unquote state or, or whatever term we want to use for these these emerging kingdoms and stuff like that. And, and so, as you say, that these are not meaningless wars in the sense that they are just wanton violence for the sake of violence or anything like that. Well, yeah, absolutely. And we, you know, from where we're sitting, we have a tendency to look at things like this and just see chaos. But for yeah. the people operating in this system, well, that's what they were doing. They were operating in a system. This is actually their constitutional system that you that there's an inheritance system. And part of the system is that people who lose out challenge it through violence. And that's largely how it's settled. But because we live in a society where you know, violence is not a part of our political process or, you know, used to not be, and hopefully it really won't be again in the future yeah. that this has been a strange year. But, you know, yeah. we, we'd think that that's a breakdown of the system, but this was just normal for people and not because they're barbarians. This was also part of the Roman process of figuring this out. Absolutely. too. Yeah. I mean, I mean, who had longer stretches of civil war than the Romans? Right. Uh. <laughs> 
And, you know, it's funny, this passage, um, I know Asimov here really wants to evoke um, this period of, of sustained kind of endemic warfare after the collapse of the Roman Empire and stuff like that. But then you get to the actual storytelling that he gets to after this. And Hardin tells us that essentially there's been this balance of power. Um, since of his coup uh, over the encyclopedias that for the last 30 years, he's been playing these four kingdoms off each other. None of the kingdoms seem to have really gone to war with each other or with Terminus. And Hardin tells us that um, essentially his horizon of news is Terminus and these four kingdoms and stuff like that. So despite the fact that Asimov wants to evoke this era of fragmentation and resulting warfare and chaos and things like this, the immediate locus of our storytelling actually appears to be a place that up up until the moment of this story has found some way to achieve stability w- without warfare um, because of the way Terminus is playing these four kingdoms off each other and offering them scientific aid and things like that. Right. Part two opens with uh, some information about Anacreon and one of its neighbors that's also, you know, declared themselves to be a, you know, a, a new independent state have been at war. And that's the reason why Anacreon is interested in Terminus in the first place. And they're actually all interested in Terminus because they are trying to make this kind of initial grab for territory in, I guess, what, you know, from a distance you could see as laying out where the new boundaries, where the new borders are going to be. But yeah, Hardin. It's, you know, it's been 30 years. It's been literally half his lifetime since then. He tells us, right, he's 60 now. This was 30 years ago. So he's, he's you know, <laughs> lived an entire lifetime again and is still thinking about the situation when he was 30 as if it's the situation now, but then also tells us that that's not been the situation and that he's responsible solely. Right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's interesting. It's a strange bit of characterization there to have, you know, it's, and, and the world building that we get here is in the mind of Hardin. So right. He is thinking that, but then even exactly. as he's actually showing us that that's, uh, that's not the case. So yeah, interesting bit of world building there. The other thing, of course, right. That Asimov is trying to really evoke here is, of course, that you know civilization, that material civilization is collapsing or, or has collapsed, that yeah. it's in ruin. He literally says, "Life among ruins." Here, and you know, thinking about you know, you know, my area of expertise in late antiquity and the early Middle Ages, right? Do I think that that's an accurate uh, depiction of the sixth century or not? You know, is is kind of one of the questions here, and I, I would say that you know this is true for Italy in the 6th century, or certainly from like, you know, the 530s on, because as we said earlier, what's going on in Italy in the 6th century is super complicated. But one of the big things, or not one of, you know, the big thing that's happening is that the empire actually comes back and conquers Italy yeah. again, also North Africa. But it's a war that takes, in, in Italy, it's a war that takes 20 years, 530s, 540s, 550s, and it is materially devastating. It is essentially you know, the only real instance of something that might pass off as being a kind of total war in the early Middle Ages. Though part of why it's so devastating is that there's also an outbreak of what is almost certainly the bubonic plague in the 540s. And, uh, you know, total war plus bubonic plague is not a good combination. That's just not something you should, should be asking for. And so really devastating to Italy. So life among the ruins might work there maybe also in britain where plumbing like seems to have stopped working around 500 yeah i I would accept that yeah Yeah. but i just i think that's less true anywhere else though i think that's not as true in spain or gaul which is precisely the areas that asimov seems to be focusing on in some ways um 
you know, in, in that these are these sort of uh, kingdoms carved out of prefectures. You know, you, you evoked the Visigoths, the Burgundians and the Franks, which seems to be what Asimov has in mind here in a lot of ways. Yeah. And one of the ways that we know that a lot of material civilization is still functioning in the sixth century in Gaul in particular is uh, because of this war that I invoked earlier, this uh, 508 or yeah, 507, we should say 507 to 511 or so, and which is maybe actually kind of a world war in the sense that a large number, um, the majority of these uh, barbarian kings the majority of these new states are involved in this war in, in some capacity or another. And also the, the emperor in Constantinople gets involved in some of the geopolitics around it as well. It's a very big war. We have a lot of evidence from it, a lot of information from it. And so we know that it was a particularly destructive war for some cities that were besieged. Uh, some opened their gates and let people in, but most resisted. And many of the cities that resisted then were sacked. And because the aggressors won this war, they had conquered new territory. We have a lot of petitions from these cities in southern and central Gaul to people like Clovis, uh, to people like Theodoric, who's the king in Italy, who's taken over a bit of southern France. And then also we have um, some of these also going to the Burgundian uh, king, uh, Gundabad, and his son, uh, Sigismund, where people are saying, and people, it's usually bishops, they're, they're, they're the church leaders of these cities, writing to or going to kings on behalf of their community saying, hey, um, you know, our baths and our aqueducts uh, were destroyed uh, or damaged in some way during this war. Some of our fields were damaged. So we really could use some help. And maybe if you don't actually have any cash to help us repair the aqueduct, could you at least not collect taxes this year so that we can use yeah. that money to, to repair these things. And so we can see clearly that people are even after their material civilization has been damaged, they're repairing it. They're fixing it. They're not in ruins. Yeah. And I mean, to a certain extent, this is happening in, in Asimov's story. It's just that the repair work is all being guided by the, the lending of, scientific expertise from this one sort of beacon of civilization that survived on Terminus, um, as opposed to sort of a, a, a kind of mm, general know-how or general renovation or something like that. Right. That's definitely what Asimov is doing here. And and look, this is is true in the early Middle Ages as well. It's just not true, you know, in this sort of timeline that that is the analog for what Asimov is is doing, right? That the world Asimov is describing is maybe more like the seventh century. I, I would, I think it's fair to say that by the year 650, a lot of this technical ability, right? Like building or repairing aqueducts and baths, like, you know, keeping the plumbing going. Also big construction, like monumental construction. A lot of this technical yeah. knowledge, technical ability is gone in exactly the way that Asimov is, you know, playing with nuclear power here. Although it's interesting, like I, I, I was musing about this as in preparation for this, trying to think of what the analog for nuclear power would have been sort of at the, the late Roman Empire um, and, and sort of what the equivalent of that kind of technical expertise is. Nuclear power in Asimov's telling is made to be the kind of foundational knowledge of the entire galactic empire, the thing without which it simply cannot exist. Um, and that the loss of this is just emphasized over and over and over again on, on page 74, you know, right after 
um, the passage you read, it then goes on to say a civilization falling, nuclear power forgotten, science fading to mythology, um, as if the end of civilization and the loss of nuclear power are, are, you know, go hand in hand. They're almost the same development or something like this. And, and to think about, you know, what what body of knowledge in the late Roman Empire was so absolutely foundational in this way to the the maintenance uh, of the empire. And I, I just can't come up with one, really. Um, what what the what what body of expertise could be so foundational and yet lost so quickly and so easily? Part of why this is so difficult for us to even conceive of is that we can't conceive of it for our world either right yeah. like the world that is exactly. their fallen civilization is still more technologically sophisticated than ours i mean it, you know asimov makes a big deal of, of saying here and it, you know it's actually in the character of, of venus of saying i remember when you know 30 years ago before we had this deal with the foundation i remember when we were heating our homes with coal <laughs> and yeah. oil which um like hey that's how we live but he's presenting that as if like that was barbaric that was the dark age it was like well that's yes, like exactly. that's how i heat my home and i don't know the cats like it they love to sit in front of the vent and like it's the forced air is nice for them so yeah exactly you know, and they have they still have interstellar space flight you know like faster than light travel things we can't even conceive of yet so that makes it difficult for us to wrap our brains around it but also yeah i think absolutely right the point you're driving at is there just isn't really an analog to that in the, the ancient world or the medieval world, where there's just this all-encompassing technology. But the things that we see in the story, like at the end, when uh, Hardin actually invokes this or you know starts going this this interdict where the priests shut off all the nuclear power, he gives us sort of a list of things that are going to be different without the nuclear power. And it's, it is, it's yeah. Heating your home, powering your home, um, plumbing. So running, running water, I mean, <laughs> which is apparently powered by nuclear yeah, power. Why? I, not just like pressure and dams. I don't know, but you know, yeah. there it is. What happened to gravity flow? <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. But there it is. Right. So it is about these material comforts. So I do think that if we're thinking about it in terms of not the technology, but in terms of the effects, in terms of the consequences, then yeah, we can look at baths and aqueducts that essentially we're talking about plumbing here, right? Like is, yeah. is do, yeah, exactly. do people know how to fix the plumbing or not? And they do around the year 500, they know how to fix the ancient plumbing that provides public baths, um, drinking water, you know, coming down from the mountains. Also, uh, like actual heated floors in at least wealthy people's home, affluent people's homes. And yeah, by 650 everywhere, really in Western Europe, that that technology is gone. It's interesting. I, I, I focus on this only to point out um, some of the underlying ways in which I think Asimov's story is very much one of sort of technological determinism, because for him, the loss of nuclear power Although it happens because the empire begins to fragment or the, the, the loss of nuclear expertise, although it happens because the empire begins to fragment and collapse and things like this, it's also clearly for him um, one of the driving causes of fragmentation. Once nuclear, the ex nuclear expertise is lost, um, the kind of it, it kind of accelerates or hastens um, the, the fragmentation and destruction of the galactic empire and things like that. Whereas a lot of what you're talking about, the loss of expertise, 
um, for building aqueducts, for baths and stuff like this. We very much think of as in some ways the kind of byproduct of other processes of war, of famine and, and things like this. We don't necessarily think that the Roman Empire fell because fe- people forgot how to fix the plumbing. We think that people forgot how to fix the plumbing because of some other things that happened or, 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 or something like that. I don't know. Maybe I'm not accurate on this. Maybe I, 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 I don't think in as materialistic terms about the end of the Roman Empire um, as some other scholars do. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, there is a, a pretty famous argument that it actually was the plumbing that caused the fall of the Roman yeah, Empire right. to the I, lead poisoning. As I said that, I was remembering <laughs> but, that exact yeah, no one, thing. Yeah. No, one, no one actually buys that. That's not, not, not a real argument. But yeah, there was this, there has been made this argument that uh, it was le- all, all because of lead poisoning. The lead pipe <laughs> right. pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's just, right. Yeah. Uh, just, just absolute nonsense. But, uh, but fun, but fun nonetheless. But no, I think this is a great point, actually, of of what is the relationship between these things. And, and you know, just thinking about Asimov's world here, the Galactic Empire, it, this is not spelled out for us, at least not up to this point. But I guess we have to then assume that there is some relationship between nuclear power and uh, telecommunications and also even just like long distance yeah. travel. And so although I said, hey, these people still have faster than light travel that we don't have. I guess apparently it's not as good as it used to be. They can't go as far or as fast. And so traveling is harder. It's interesting. I mean, there's this point where Hardin is on his way to Anacreon and he doesn't go straight there. Um, He travels to like eight other planets before. So Anacreon as a kingdom is comprised of several planetary systems. Um, And so before going to the capital planet, Anacreon itself, he travels to some of these other planetary systems or something like this. And and he, he reflects on how big it feels, even though it's a tiny splinter compared to the former galactic empire. It still feels big to him because his whole world is just one planet at this point, Terminus. So we do get the sense that he's traveling vast interstellar distances here um, but on his way to Anacreon. And it doesn't seem like a big deal or a big problem or anything like this. And one question that's sort of left unresolved is, you know, does this know-how only exist because Terminus has given nuclear power? But like, you know, the kingdom of Anacreon never dissolved into individual planets at any point and then was rebuilt up from the from the ground up. Um, we always got a sense that it was a kingdom comprised of multiple planetary systems, even when they had lost nuclear power um, during part two and, and so forth. So you're right that there's still a sense that oh, this is pretty technologically developed by our standards and so forth. And then, you know, over and over again, nuclear power is just kind of evoked as this synecdoche um, for kind of technological know-how and civilizational status or something. It is a bit mind-boggling. I think because if, you know, if we just imagine that, yeah, there is this type of space travel and we assume that like there's this type of space travel and you can get anywhere in part because, you know, yeah, yeah, that's what we see in Star Trek and Star Wars, right? This is very much what we get in on-screen depictions of of this sort of thing. And, you know, maybe we should be more like envisioning Battlestar Galactica, um, like the reboot, you know, the reboot, the reimagined Battlestar Galactica, where like it's actually hard to like plot out a course and um, there is actual like, you know, fuel 
fuel that you need. I mean, I, we know it's nuclear power here, you know, but like stuff that you need to acquire yeah. to, to make things go and so on, you know, that, that something has happened to make this more, more difficult. But also a lot of this might actually really be, again, not caused by the technology, but by other factors. Another thing that we're told in this passage is that the population is much reduced uh, on each of these planets. It's begun growing again because of the stability that is provided actually by the nuclear power, uh, stability and prosperity, but that it is still significantly less than it was at the height of the Galactic Empire, which would totally have been true about saying that. You know, you could say that about any place in Western Europe in 500. It has Absolutely. way reduced population to, you know, that same town or same province, same city in 100. So we've got that going on. But also, hey, we just don't know what's happening elsewhere. That the, pro- the real problem might actually be the geopolitical situation next door. Exactly. And we don't really begin to get a sense of that until the, the later parts of the book and so forth. This is very much kind of terminus and anacreon in this story. But Hardin does make it clear that he has he has the best technology there is at this point, but he has no real knowledge of what's going on beyond these four kingdoms that surround Terminus. As you are hinting, we are going to find out more about this in the in the next part. So maybe we'll we'll table this until uh, till next episode. There's one more thing that I want to uh, talk about here before we circle back to your invocation of the the High Middle Ages, which is that this section, as it's printed here in the book, right, is called the Mayors. Uh, although we actually only meet one mayor, and that's Hardin, yep. right? But there's a real sense that you know, mayor is the head of state, right? It's not just like mayor of a town or mayor of a city. He is the head of state of this planet. He's the ruler of this planet. There is this council, right? It's not a kind of absolute monarchy, but mayor's the head of state. And uh, this is 100% a medievalist joke, right? This is actually again about- I think it has, has to, to be. be. Yeah. has to be. Yeah. This is about the Franks again. So all of the, the, the Franks who we've been talking about so far, I think Clovis is the only person we've actually really named, but Clovis and his descendants who rule- this this territory uh, up until well really the early eighth century or we could just say middle eighth century might actually be more accurate so for you know two and a half centuries long time um, we also call them the Merovingians which you know is a term people have heard in the Matrix at the very at the very least right but yeah none of my students ever get it oh, though is that just mean we're really old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly yeah, what that I didn't means. Need to, I did not need that today, Jay. But that's yeah, all. sorry. <laughs> well, that's fair. Well, at any rate, they're the Merovingian Franks, and they then are succeeded by the Carolingian Franks. And the Carolingian, you know, these are dynasties. These are named, these are, are family names, right? So the, the Carolingians take their name from uh, the fact that a lot of them are named Carol, or which is to say Charles. And this transition really happens when... Uh, an official of the Merovingian state, the Merovingian Frankish state, a high ranking official starts really becoming the, the de facto ruler, even if he's not actually the king in name. There is still a king, uh, but the kings don't actually wield any power or have any real authority that the actual machinery of government, including the waging of war, is being run by um, a different official, uh, someone who today we would think of as being like the chief of staff. Uh, but in fact, the title was uh, mayor. Mayor Domo, mayor of the house, the right? Mayor of, <laughs> right, the mayor, palace. mayor of the palace, Absolutely. exactly. And so that's the joke here, because uh, this situation actually goes on for really about forty years. You know, so 
multiple generations before finally uh, the ruler Pepin the the short um, actually deposes the last Merovingian king, which he does in 751, and he does this with the approval and you know support of the the Pope. Um, he writes the Pope a letter and says, "Hey, do you think it's right for the person who's actually like running things here to be called the mayor instead of the king?" And the Pope writes back and says, "No, that's a pretty bad way to do it. Who's whoever's actually running things should be the king." So there's a kind of coup, a, a deposition that's all kind of murky in the narrative sources, and then right, this is how the mayors become kings, and that's obviously the joke here. It is the joke here. It, it's weird. It's an interesting joke because you know that is happening in the Frankish kingdom, which here is sort of anacreon, right. <laughs> and we have no and we have no sense of that happening in this case. And Hardin, although he appears to be the head of state, is still an elected official, which the mayor of the palace was not. Um, one of our main sources for this, um, Einhard's Life of Charlemagne, says something to the effect that. Um, mayor of the palace had become basically an inherited office um, amongst the Carolingian for the Carolingian family at this stage. And so it's funny. It is a it is a joke, um, although it's it's kind of a joke with limited potential um, because you know, the mayor of the he's clearly I think the idea Asimov wants is that because Terminus has a mayor, it still has electoral government um, as opposed to these kingdoms, which are now monarchies and stuff like this. But in fact, the the historical office mayor of the palace was very much embedded in a sort of monarchical system, um, not an electoral system at all. Right. I think that for Asimov, what's fun here, like what's amusing to him is that, you know, in America, towns, cities have yeah. mayors. Right. So the idea that uh, that for a long time the most you know powerful state in the medieval west medieval western europe you know was run by a mayor is is i suppose kind yeah. of funny <laughs> you know it seems funny yeah I, I wonder if he was aware you know mayor just from the latin word mayor m-a-i-o-r which you know just means sort of you know I, a, a person high up a person with supremacy or something yeah like i mean it that. literally just means you know, big it's big the man, greater one you know yeah, yeah big man yeah exactly <laughs> yeah i mean we actually use the term like big wig right like that's which yeah. literally means like you've got a large head so your wig is large i guess yeah, but like right exactly. like that's that's kind of the parallel or chief is maybe how i might actually translate yeah, that chief would be good you know we still use it as a military rank major absolutely yeah um, so yeah you know this is all the same word basically Yeah. well and majors in the military as well you know i was in the army so you know this is my experience with majors major is a rank that's not uh, a command rank so like companies are commanded oh. by captains and then um, battalions uh, are commanded by colonels and what majors mostly do is serve as executive officers for colonels so they are actually doing the same oh. thing that a mayor of the palace is supposed to do and hey if the you know for some reason the colonel's out of commission then you step in <laughs> How interesting. I didn't know yeah, this. So <laughs> My sole experience of the rank major is catch 22, major, 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 major. That's all I know about it. Yeah. Right. People are not generally uh, majors uh, on, on TV. Yeah, TV and film love Colonel. That's like the, the favorite rank. Right. Or, you know, yeah. captain and commander in Star Trek, of course. But uh, yeah, basically yeah. think Riker um, and you've got it. You've got it. He's actually is, in fact, the same pay grade as, yep. um, as a major would be in the, the army. Um, it's just that that's that's commander in the in the Space Navy there. But uh but yeah, getting back to the Middle Ages and not, uh, not Star yeah, Trek. Sorry about no, that. <laughs> I'm the one who took us to Star Trek because I can't help it. But uh, yeah, getting back to the Middle Ages, I will just say that definitely nothing about this situation here feels like the Carolingian era to me. So that's no. just not what Asimov is doing. I mean, it doesn't, uh, t to me, 
you know, as someone who studies the high Middle Ages, you study the early Middle Ages. You know, I, I sort of hinted at this point earlier. To me, this does not feel like any particular moment in the Middle Ages um, in, in some ways. The kind of geopolitical situation um, is evocative of uh, the very early Middle Ages, like you've said, the sixth and seventh centuries. Um, but a lot of the cultural evocations are things we would associate with much later in the Middle Ages. It, it just doesn't map that effectively to a particular era of medieval Europe. One of the reasons that happens is that there's a real incongruity between the geopolitical situation that we've been talking about. And uh, I mean, really, that's most of what we've been talking about. There's a, so there's an, an incongruity between that and then the thing that's actually the real driver of this part, of part three here, which is this yep. religion. Because if we're just looking at the religion... I think we we are definitely looking at something that is the high Middle Ages and maybe in particular like, you know, the 12th and 13th centuries, like, you know, like circa, you know, 1200, maybe more precisely. So we should move into talking about the religion here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the the driving narrative device of this section of the story. This the, to the to the extent that there's a progression of themes um, throughout the novel as a whole. This section is the religion section. This is the religion part of the book. Um, and it's quite fascinating to find it here. It tells us a lot about Asimov's ideas about religion, um, what what it was used for, how it sort of operated as a social and cultural and political phenomenon. Um, it, for all that, we're not given a great many details about this religion. Um, there's a educational center on Terminus itself, which trains priests, as they were referred to, in nuclear expertise um, without really teaching them any of the underlying theory or anything like that about it. And then they are dispatched back to planets um, where they keep the sort of nuclear power running and so forth, but teach the people about a galactic spirit, teach them to venerate nuclear power as a quasi-magical religious force of some sort. So so we have some situation here where nuclear power, where science has been self-consciously refashioned as a set of religious beliefs. And I think this is an important point in thinking about it, too. It's not as if organically nuclear power emerged as the object of veneration or something like that. It's quite clear here that Hardin has self-consciously developed nuclear power into a religious cults as part of his strategy for how to maintain Terminus's position um, in the remains of the Galactic Empire. Yeah, and he's he's even accused of of doing this by these uh, uh, youngsters in the uh, these you know upstart youngsters in the the council on Terminus who who think that you know this is a bad thing to have done. And he he defends himself by saying, "Well, it wasn't my intention to do that. This just offered the the path of least resistance because yeah. these barbarians will believe any of these silly superstitions that that it's actually a lot easier to swallow." I'm not sure I I buy that at all. I also don't really buy the time frame here that 30 years so you know basically one generation and suddenly people are have you know have converted like on mass not just not just converted but are fanatical yeah are devoted to it right it's one thing to imagine this scenario where we're told in the early middle ages that entire kingdoms convert to christianity or something you know like okay sure th this probably did happen but you know how 
fanatically devoted was anybody two years after they'd sort of been part of a mass conversion to a new religion or something like this. But the people on Anacreon are cultists at this point, right? Devotees. Yeah, in the early Middle Ages, this happens because, you know, what we mean even by conversion is baptism, is that people go through the ritual of conversion, that it's not actually about adopting a belief system really in in any way, the way that we would mean that now. And also, I guess, really, to be fair, the way Augustine meant it, right? You know, uh, that it's about this really internal, like personal spiritual experience to convert, like to, you know, to become a member of a religion, to adopt its belief system, to become a member of that community. That is not what's happening when these like... Like whole, um, you know, communities uh, convert uh, because of missionary activity, and what always ends up happening is that people go through this ritual because they think, yeah, like it looks like the people who worship this god are doing really awesome compared to us. They've got cooler stuff and more power, and well, I would like to have more power than I have, and would like to have cooler yeah. stuff. So let's do it. This god's going to give us this stuff, and of course, that's not how it works. They do a bad job of it. Like they convert to this religion, they convert to Christianity, but then don't really practice it very well. So the missionary has to come back and like chastise them <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. and, and continue. Exactly. Yeah. So that just is not, does not ever happen. And this religion here that, you know, I don't even know what to call it. We don't really get a name for it here, like Seldonism or foundationalism or something. Maybe we might call it because it regards Harry Seldon as a prophet, like Exactly. Like a prophet, like he's the one who's issuing com- the commandments or has issued the commandments of how people should live. And he's regarded as being this, you know, sort of divine figure. That's like what it means to be a prophet, right? Is to be speaking uh, with some kind of divine or, or supernatural power that means people should listen to what you have to say. And there's a God, they don't call it God, but you know, the galactic power it's in capital letters. No galactic spirit. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, That's what it is. Yeah. And it's in capital letters. And so, yeah, like this is a real big change. This is not like a small, like, like this is not a sort of nuance to a religion that people already had. This is like a thing that you actually have to convert to. And in 30 years, not only do we get fanatics that, which is not really how this plays out, you know, in the real world. But we also go from, hey, here's someone we could regard as a prophet to now here is a massive, uh, centralized, highly organized institution and also yeah. set of like uh, beliefs and uh, principles around that. It's basically as if we've gone from uh, in in 30 years, we've gone from the crucifixion of Christ in Jerusalem to uh, the Catholic church of the, the middle papal ages, mo- papal monarchy. <laughs> yeah. The papal monarchy of the 13th century. Yeah. I mean, the timeline that's set up here is, is wildly implausible. Um, even if, <laughs> uh, you know, so one of the interesting things is of course, you know, the, the process of religious conversion and the growth of Christianity happens in a world that's already deeply religious. Um, uh, the, the Romans are deeply religious committed to, to their pagan pagan deities and so forth. Um, and the barbarians have their religious traditions as well. And so the process of conversion is always one, the, the, the process of the growth of Christianity isn't sort of unreligious people suddenly devoted, you know, it's not scientific people all of a sudden devotedly becoming religious or anything like that. It's the process of a new religious tradition kind of overriding and adapting and working its way into pre-established um, 
cults and, and, and other religious practices and stuff like that. Here, we're left deeply uncertain exactly as the as to the religious status of the galactic empire beforehand. But it's very clear, it's made very clear by Asimov that what this religion is taking the place of is not previous religions, but science. It, it's, it's grafting, it's growing up within the sort of scientific domain and so forth. And, and so, yeah, it becomes a very complicated idea to swallow that within 30 years, which is, you know, not even a full lifetime, um, people would go from being kind of, ah, yeah, nuclear power. I remember that when that was good to, wow, nuclear power is God's energy and Harry Seldon is a prophet and I will totally riot if anybody tries to take it away from me. <laughs> right, because the, the nuclear power here is being presented as miraculous, it's a type exactly. of religious magic that only the priests can have. And um, because the priests have this cool magic stuff that they can do that makes the water flow. And, you know, we, we everybody loves a nice hot shower, right? So, like, the, the yeah, priests sure. have this power. So, I'm definitely going to join up for that so that I can have it. Right. So, there is a material component, uh, a kind of you know, stick or, well, I guess, no, it's the carrot. I suppose, right. It's the carrot. Yeah. yeah. The stick is something else. This is sort of the carrot here in why people might convert. And this does go, you know, analogously with some conversion tales that we get from the early middle ages and saints lives where they're performing miracles. It's not usually like making your house more comfortable. It's usually something different, but you know, still working miracles in order to show the awesome power of the Christian God and showing why you should convert to that and, and devotedly convert to that here. I think I have to push a little, you know, there, there's this famous phrase that that's used to bantered around in sort of science fiction and other things about how technology to any sufficiently um, technology from a sufficiently advanced civilization would be indistinguishable f from magic to certain people, which is an idea that gets bantered around to, to sort of talk about how, um, science might be treated as religion to 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 certain quote unquote primitive groups or something like this but here you know it, it's important to recognize that people in the middle ages were perfectly capable of distinguishing between the operations of god and the operations of nature um they they understood that there was technique that there was technology and stuff that wasn't just you know, divine magic or the intervention of God and things like this. And, and the way this this part of the novel completely collapses, plays with the idea of a complete collapsing of the distinction between technology and religion is one that's, you know, very attractive as a storytelling device and so forth, but definitely doesn't have maybe as much historical grounding in medieval culture as Asimov maybe thought it did. Absolutely. This is something, of course, you and I both encounter with our students all the time is this, what we would call presentism, right? This idea that, you know, us now yeah. we're awesome and everyone in the past was stupider than us. Um, Exact opposite, usually true on an individual to individual Almost basis, always. Right? <laughs> Almost always. But yeah, this idea that 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 pre-modernity, uh, at the at the least, right before fifteen hundred, and really probably most people have a kind of internal belief that people even just kind of generally before like 1900 or 1800 were just generally superstitious and kind of stupid, and that definitely is what's going on here. That there's a real. Um, 
contrast between secularism and and religiosity and that you know if if you have religion you can't also be scientific or, or rational like that's that's really the word we should be using here not scientific yeah, is that you can't yeah. be rational in in some way but that's absolutely not the the case right as you're as you're saying and if we looked out the you know window right now and saw a car uh, going down the street which you know that would be normal except that it's flying we aren't going to think, oh my gosh, what church does that person go to? I better get yeah, myself exactly. to it. We would say, well, <laughs> what magic right, right. is We'd this? We'd say, who yeah. built that? And how and why? And how do I get one? That seems cool. But hey, that's exactly what someone would do in the year 1000 or 500 or 2000 BC also. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we we underappreciate the, the extent to which this is the case that n- nuclear power wouldn't have automatically been magical to sort of pre-modern people or anything like that wouldn't have automatically been God's work or anything like this. Although, to be fair to Asimov, he does make it clear that this is this is not necessarily because people were automatically going to believe this um, on Anacreon so much as it is the case that Harden promoted the idea that he sort of self-consciously pushed the idea um, on people that nuclear power had this quasi-divine status and built up all these ritualistic behaviors around it, um, that even the idea of kingship was kind of attached to the divine magic of nuclear power. There's these references to Leppold having like a nuclear aura around him when he appears in public and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, there is a, a, a sense that it's fabricated in Asimov's world. Which I think is also probably what Asimov thinks actually about the medieval church as as Correct. well, right? That it's kind of corrupt. It's after power and wealth and control and is simply using the religious teachings as a way of gaining power over over the world. We'll maybe talk more about that in a minute. But I, I, yeah, I do want to point out that, of course, one of the things that this religion is offering, like the th- consequences of nuclear power are actually just that things you already have in your life are done better. So it's like, it's not a new thing. It's just that your house can be heated better than it was before. You've got better running water or, or something like that, you know, not like, you know, a massive technological change. It's not really some kind of like, you know, technological revolution to have nuclear power, except for the part where uh, we do see some cool things that like we don't have in our world like yeah these these nuclear you know radioactive halos around us and like the throne can float and that sort of thing but none of that's practical like that's not a thing that people are getting out of being practitioners of this religion being members of this religion so yeah that's an interesting feature as well this floating throne that you mentioned by the way i think also has to be a a a very insider reference to medieval history. I, I I don't know this is true, but I assume that Asimov here is evoking the throne of Solomon at the Byzantine court, um, which was famous for having all sorts of automata and the fact that it could be raised up on cranks and present the appearance of levitating and things like this, and was kind of a central aspect of court spectacle at the Byzantine or the Eastern Roman court. We have several descriptions of it, um, one from a Westerner named Leotprand of Cremona who travels to see it. Um, and I think Asimov must be echoing that idea here of the sort of use of technology to create a kind of aura of kingship, um, of kingship as 
um, as as quasi sacred, as sacramental, um, as, as sort of having this divine quality about it. No, that's exactly what he's got in mind here, right? And the, the idea is that, of course, everyone operating the, the 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 machinery there in the palace in Constantinople know that it's machinery, but that it can be used to trick other people uh, into thinking yeah. that like there is something actually divine about the the Byzantine emperor, and that's exactly what Asimov is showing us here. Though he also has this line where he says the priests who are operating the machinery there who are operating you know the nuclear machines that make the throne float even as they are pushing buttons and pulling levers or you know whatever to make it work and they're controlling it still they themselves actually still believe that it is miraculous what they are doing even as they're operating it it's only when you get to the really high priests who are like native determinists and stuff like that, that they understand the the sham of this entire religious <laughs> cult. Um, you know, the, the, most of the priests appear to be fanatically devoted to this um, as much as anybody else and to have fully bought into it as much as anybody else. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Right. This is something that is a feature of this organization of, of you know, Asimov's version of the medieval church here is that it has a monopoly on education, which is more or less true, I would say, of the medieval church, though you, you're really the person who should be making those, those statements here and not me. So I'll turn that over to you, really. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, th- this is one of these questions that, you know, to, to put it in very crude terms, it ultimately depends on what you mean by education. Um, so th- there's a kind of highly literate form of education based on the ability to compose Latin, to learn formal rhetoric, um, to learn the arts of grammatica and stuff like this. That probably is more or less the purview of, if not the church, the clerical elite of medieval Europe or something like this. Um, But that, so when I say something like that, now it gets, if you're not careful, you get the assumption that by default, all kind of elite education is just like religion at this point. Um, that what they learn is kind of theology and doctrine and 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 this is what education is at this moment. We know this is not true. People are still reading classical Roman literature. People are still composing complicated Latin poems. Um, there's plenty of secular historical writing that goes on during this period. So it's not as if religious knowledge and education have become interchangeable at this point. And it's also true that I think you know we 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 tend to think. We, we have this easy situation where we think of education as um, as literate, as as highly literate training, the ability to write and to read. And what we, you know, we think of this as kind of high culture or something. And, yeah, here again. So the clergy probably had, if not a monopoly, a, a pretty good chokehold on these higher levels of literate training in medieval Europe to the extent that, you know, Clericus, the, the word cleric could mean someone who is literate in certain contexts. But we should be fair that, um, you know, the, the other people of medieval Europe were still educated in some ways. They just weren't necessarily educated in the ways that we would associate with the Roman Empire or with, you know, traditional Roman educational culture or something like this. Um, but I do think that what Asimov is trying to get at here. Um, is that there was a type of intellectual expertise um, that previously 
you know, before the Middle Ages would have been associated with secular learning in general, and which now is associated with training for the church, um, that that some type of education that previously wasn't explicitly attached to the clergy is now kind of attached to the clergy, this kind of literate training um, or training in the arts of grammar and rhetoric and stuff like this. And I don't think he's wrong to sort of evoke that idea. Um, I, I think this way of attaching it to this kind of authoritarian church structure is a little tendentious in some ways, but he is but he's an, he's he's getting at a sort of fundamental fact about intellectual life in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Well, if we think about literacy as a technology, right? Writing definitely is a it's a tool. Reading is a tool. That's the actual analog for nuclear power here, right? It because is. the church does have a, a near monopoly on this tool. Although even here, we have to point, I, there was some recent interesting study. You probably know more about this than I do, but there's been interesting work on sort of sort of lay intellectuals in the Carolingian world and stuff. So, so people, people who are kind of part of a high intellectual culture, but are lay people, not the clergy. But again, we're, we're nibbling at the edges here. This, this basic foundational idea um, that the clergy had kind of a monopoly on literacy is, is, is one we can work with, um, even if it's one that would need to be nuanced in some ways. Right. I, I would say that, that if we're going to make that claim, it's going to be most accurate uh, for, you know, the uh, 11th and, and 12th and centuries in particular. Right. And so that's, you know, where we are thinking about the high Middle Ages and also the construction of, of states after actually after the breakup of the Carolingian Empire, which is not something yeah. we've been thinking about as an analog here. And that's a rabbit hole I'm not not going to send us down, but just to paint maybe a picture of in what way would the you know monopoly on literacy, in what way does that actually you know affect the business of like government or like daily life for people in the high Middle Ages is in you know some sense in the operation of the the law right of looking up records like property records um, uh, settling disputes you know like where's the paper trail well the paper trail yeah. has all been created by clerics of some sort and and often housed <laughs> by by clerics as well and they're the people who can read the documents that are brought into court and the whole science of law is really a clerical purview at this point and and really just if you as the king as the ruler of a state want to keep records like tax records um legal records and that sort of thing you have to bring in clerics to do that work for you and so you are dependent on them in that sense I mean, thinking about sort of, you know, one of the common ways we think about the high Middle Ages is to think about the kind of rise of the apparatuses of administration, of bureaucracy, uh, of the growing kind of institutionalization of, of things like the papacy or, or kingdoms and stuff like that, which very much tie literacy to the rise of rulership, to the rise of authority, certain modes of authority, certain ways of exercising power and stuff like that. And even though no mention is, is made of this in Asimov, right, literacy seems to be simply presumed amongst everybody at this stage because they can read microfilms after all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, there, there, there is a certain analog here between kind of writing as a source of power and nuclear expertise as a source of power. So, yeah, I mean, in, in, an unexpected connection here is, you know, writing as nuclear power. 
Well, yeah, and it is really cool, but of course, it's not a complete analog in the sense that no. if the you know the the Pope said, okay, um, we're shutting it, we're shutting this down, we're shutting down all church operations in this country, and that includes um, keeping tax records and um, uh, bringing in documents to settle legal disputes and so on, that's not really going to have the type of like riotous effect that Asimov is showing us where he's making the, where he's actually making this be something that like affects people's material comfort and, yeah. and also just frankly, their material well-being, which is not really what's happening. But there, this is a real thing, right? This interdict, the papal interdict is a real invention of the high middle ages. It's a thing that happens uh, fairly often, or well, I shouldn't say fairly often, but it's a thing we have a lot of records of. What is that actually like? Placing a kingdom under papal interdict um, would not turn off your plumbing. Uh, <laughs> it would not make you unable to, you know, heat your house or anything like this, but it would effectively um, mean that the sacraments, um, the, the ritual centerpieces of church life, of religious life, um, couldn't be performed. In that kingdom. Um, so we're talking communion, confession, uh, uh, things of these. Uh, confession is kind of a, a, a late development. Um, but effectively, the church, the ritual life of the church would cease to operate in the region under interdict. And so you're right that the real parallel here in a lot of ways for nuclear power isn't writing exactly but the ritual life of the church, uh, or in this case, of the nuclear religion that these people are dedicated to. Um, so when the priests go on strike, yes, it has the side effect of all technology grinding to a halt on Anacreon. But what's really happening is that the priests are refusing to perform the ritual practices associated with the operation of this nuclear power. Um, and you know, th this was a real threat in the Middle Ages to deprive people of communion, to deprive people um, of the ability to participate in the sort of daily ritual life of the church um, is one that would have had cultural repercussions, what we might think of as psychological repercussions, regardless of how dedicated people were to the religion to be placed outside of it is a real problem in a lot of ways. And, and this affects a lot of aspects of life of regular life for people, because it's not just about like, do you get communion or not though? That's a super big deal, but it is also marriages, funerals, yeah. Can you get married? baptisms. Like you have a new baby, you want to get baptized and you definitely want to do that. Like in a world where infant mortality is super high. Right. And, and, and that's actually where, you know, not even just thinking about, yeah, can you get married? Can you hold a funeral? Which those are obviously big things that people want to be able to do. We have experienced that just, you know, from the pandemic of not being able to have those things the way that we want to yeah. and think of all of the, this type psychological toll that has taken on people. That's what a papal interdict is going to to do. But also, you know, we should really emphasize here that I think even today for people uh, in our world today who are very devout, very pious within their religion, we have a different relationship, I think, to the rituals of religions and how, how that affects the cosmology. But in the high Middle Ages, these are people who see a much clearer connection between like the ritual of communion and the ritual of baptism in particular. And your ability to live forever in heaven. If you don't get those things, you cannot do it. Yeah. A baby who isn't baptized 
Sorry. Sorry. So this is where this could be riotous, right? Where people would be uh, upset. In fact, probably in ways actually where I think people would be more upset about, uh, I can't get married. I can't bury my father. Um, my baby is now in hell because of something the King did that that's going to make me a lot angrier than like the powers off for a little while. Then like, I can't run my plumbing right now. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I think this is right. And, and, and part of the issue here is the way Asimov has constructed this religion in some ways drains it of, of, of some of the actual things that religion does for people and does for a culture and so forth. Right. I mean, you know, his religion, because it's so grounded in science and nuclear power and stuff like this, has very tangible effects, right? Do my lights turn on? Do my lights turn off? Whereas, you know, religion often fulfills kind of affective, almost non-discursive, like numinous qualities um, in, in human cultures, gives us a sense of what we cannot see, what we cannot sort of immediately sense in things like this, um, that it has all these occult qualities and so forth. And so having a religion where you can so immediately feel its effects, like, did I take a bath today or not? Um, while, while a clever conceit also in some ways um, falls short in trying to understand what religion can fulfill um, in some ways. In terms of storytelling, of course, right, this is also something that just provides a lot more immediacy uh, and, yeah. you know, and universality, right? We, we, flick, we, we flip the off switch or, you know, we toggle the switch to off and it affects everybody immediately. Whereas something like saying there aren't going to be any more weddings for, you know, until this is resolved, there aren't going to be more, any more funerals and baptisms that doesn't affect everybody immediately at the same time. Right. It, it, you know, because not everybody's waiting to get married and even people who are might say, well, okay, um, maybe this will get settled in a few days. So we'll do it next Saturday instead. And you know, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, I I think this is exactly right. And you know, for, for all that I'm hemming and hawing about this, it must be said that the scene in this section of the novel where the priest on board the Anacreonic uh, flagship, um, this old restored Imperial battlecruiser, where he pronounces a curse upon the ship <laughs> is a pretty great scene and, and not at all out of step with uh, medieval traditions about sort of um, warfare and battle and sort of venerated objects and things like this. The ability to sort of place a curse on something like this um, is a real thing that people take seriously. Um, the, the sort of leveling of curses on individuals, uh, of placing liturgical cursing on people, is actually a pretty great evocation of the kind of power that religion can have in certain contexts. I mean, this scene is super awesome and, and it gets really, you know, paired up with what's going on in the, you know, the room where, where uh, Hardin is being, you know, held prisoner. And it turns out that actually he's not the person who's in trouble here the whole time. And, yeah. you know, he's explaining, you know, what's going on. I, I imagine that when we get this scene on screen, it's going to be, it's going to cut back and forth to the two speeches. That's, I mean, like, that's how you have to tell that story cinematically. Right. And that's going to be awesome. Like I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about how someone's going to, going to do that and can't wait to to see what that's going to look like. And yeah, it's really powerful. It's it's really uh, really moving, but of course, it does depend, you know, utterly on this kind of immediacy of of this yeah. here, right? Of of having the the immediate effects of this, which is not, you know, what really happens in any of these actual historical medieval interdicts, uh papal interdicts where these things go on for a long time and most of them don't actually really end 
favorably for the church. No, they do not. I mean, very often it's a case of the church overplaying its hand when they when they try to or the pope overplaying his hand when he tries to to place a kingdom under interdict. Yeah, that's true. Well, there is this aspect to this here in foundation that we've we've brought up, but but haven't maybe focused on to the extent that we really should, because so much of how this actually operates of like Hardin's actual you know power here when he visits Anacreon and his ability to. Uh, well, I mean, you know, frankly, right, what he does is he gets Venus to kill himself and remove himself from the equation, which is actually a pretty intense, pretty dramatic uh, scene. But this is wrapped up in the foundation church, the Seldonism church. I don't, you know, we still yeah. don't know what we're calling it, but whatever we're calling whatever it, whatever yeah. we're calling it, to, you know, the ability of the, the foundation, I, I guess, to be wrapped up in the ideology of rulership, the sort of political philosophy of Anacreon, the, 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 the rituals and beliefs around kingship, right? Because the, the church here helps to present the Anacreonian kings as divine. Like they're literally referred to as semi-divine, the, the, the you know, masses of people, the rabble, right? Who are now rioting because of this interdict. The, the rabble actually believe that their king is partially godlike, partially divine because of this cool nuclear glow, right? Basically a halo and like the floating throne, you know, and you, you know, you pointed out how these are, are drawing on some images that we have of the, the Byzantine palace in Constantinople, but this is part of their legitimacy. It's foundational, uh, fundamental to their legitimacy, the perception that they ought to be uh, the rulers. Uh, foundational. Yeah. <laughs> it was, Sorry, was not meant ahead. to be a pun there. I, I tried to correct myself, but uh, every time I pun, you keep pointing it out, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, sorry. It's, it's <laughs> well, and uh, so this is so super important to their ability to like retain power. And so if those things are taken away, they need them back immediately. And so that's a part of the capitulation here of you know in ways that medieval kings don't actually really need this is why these papal interdicts as we said don't really work that well but you know it does evoke something that that that's interesting about medieval history which is that um you know d- divine kingship the, the construction of sacral kingship is obviously a real historical phenomenon and we can see it in the 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 partnership between the carolingians and the pope um and and certainly this idea of the king as God's anointed ruler on earth becomes a very powerful way through which medieval kings legitimize their authority, um, legitimize their position and stuff. But this idea that it comes at a cost that you become beholden to the church or have the the possibility of being beholden to the church or the pope is one that 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 sort of is echoed in several real conflicts in the Middle Ages um, between sort of popes and kings. Um, and, and so there is something interesting that Asimov is playing with here that on the one hand, kings really get something by legitimizing their authority through the notion of divine kingship or sacral kingship, um, but that it, it can be a double edged sword in terms of their relationship with the church as well. 
Right. A couple of things to say, maybe before we get into any real particular historical instances about like, you know, the battle between church and state or between particular monarchs and uh, or particular kings and particular popes is that, you know, I think we do in our sort of pop culture understanding of the Middle Ages have this idea that, uh, well, one, that there is a papal monarchy, right? That the, the church is run yep. by the pope in this very direct and powerful and administrative sense that like the church is this kind of weird you know, state that doesn't have any boundaries and that is trying to take power away from states, to take power away from uh, secular authorities. And there might be something to that image, but that is not the whole Middle Ages. It's barely any of the Middle Ages that that would describe, right? That this is not something that is really even a fair description until the papacy, I, I would say, of, of Innocent III, which is you know sort of right around 1200, the sort of decades around the year 1200. That's that's one thing I think we should lay out before we get started, yeah. really. But then also the idea that kings are laying claim to having some kind of of holy authority as well, some kind of sacred authority. And let's be clear, they never say that they themselves are divine or even semi-divine. Never. There's one divine human and he was crucified, you know, a thousand years ago, you know, from the perspective of people of the Middle Ages, right? So they would never claim that. But the idea that they might be divinely appointed by God or, you know, the sort of agents of God on earth, a lot of medieval kings had that ideology or used that ideology, and men's subjects had that ideology about their kings as well. But that is not an immediate feature of the Middle Ages. Uh, people we've been talking yeah. about, you know, kings, rulers we've been talking about from the sixth century. So people like Clovis and his grandsons, I think I mentioned Theodoric earlier, none of them had this idea. This was not a part of their uh, political philosophy. It was not a part of their ideology of, of, kingship. This is not something that really develops until we get to the Carolingians. This is when this really starts to become a factor. As as you said, Jay, that right, the, the Pepin the, the short ha- develops this special relationship with the Pope that is also wrapped up in the Pope's own geopolitics about like the, the political powers near him that we don't need to get into. But but this is a special relationship between Pepin the Short and the Pope and also the descendants of Pepin the Short and you know other popes as in in the future that does over time manifest in uh, particular kingdoms, uh, particular ruling families having close relationships with the church, and there being this yeah. ideology, this political philosophy that kings are divinely appointed or are the divine agents of God. But this is really something that I would say is accepted more on paper than in practice, and that there are always ways to argue that a king has lost the approval of God. Yeah, I mean, plenty of people make this argument over and over again. It's funny. I mean, kings go through rituals, uh, overtly religious rituals uh, connected to their coronation. They're anointed with oil, um, usually by a, a member of the church, a clergy or something like this. And, you know, when whenever their authority is questioned, um, they point to sort of their status as um, God's agent, um, as sort of divinely appointed, um, as, as sort of the Lord's own anointed ruler on earth and things like this. You know, I, 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 in some ways I'm less skeptical about, about the effects that this would have on rulership at the time, um, that I think it, it, it probably did end lend a, a great deal of legitimacy, um, allowed them to sort of add a certain mode of authority on top of their power, uh, uh, on top of their ability to wield power. But it, you're right. On the other hand, it, it's 
it's not something that that is infallible or, you know, plenty. It's it's not absolute monarchy or anything like this. It's not absolutism. It's no guarantee of not being criticized. It's no guarantee of avoiding excommunication or interdict or anything like this. So it is always still subject to to criticism to other modes of authority and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess that's I think you and I are on the same page about this, Jag. Is I'm I'm pushing back against maybe some of the pop culture ideas we have about medieval kingship, ah, which which right which largely right. I think come from well fantasy literature, a lot of which is Disney cartoons, in which, you know, certainly I as a kid watching cartoons had this idea that, you know, if you were the king, then that meant that you could just tell anyone in your kingdom what to do and they had to do it, which is, you know, that's not true. Yeah. That's not true. This that's is a definitely constitutional yeah. position that has extremely limited authority, in fact. And there's like a system of laws and there's a, you know, it could be a justice system and there are certainly power politics and and so on. So yeah, you you said absolute monarchy, which is a feature of early modernity, which is actually how that gets into our fairy tale worlds, right? Is because those also are from early modernity where maybe this was a little bit more true, but certainly was not at all true in the Middle Ages. And so I I don't mean to say that this was insignificant or unimportant in, you know, to people's conception, but just to say that there were lots of political rebellions, even the most powerful kings we think of, almost all of them had to deal with some family member, um, close or distant, rebelling against their authority, even though they're saying, but I'm appointed by God. Yeah. And and to, you're right. I mean, one thing that's often overlooked in sort of popular conceptions of medieval kingship is how fundamentally vulnerable and weak kings could be. Um, and, and in some ways, it was for precisely that reason that cultivating this notion of sacred kingship was so important, was, was so so invaluable in terms of establishing uh, a mode of authority that could have a certain fullness, even in the face of being very weak, powerfully, Um, you know, this kind of distinction between authority and power can be useful here um, to think about how a weak king who does not wield much power could nonetheless possess considerable authority through this kind of, um, Christian legitimacy, kind of this legitimization through a Christian ethos in the Middle Ages. This is extremely important in France, which so frequently when we're talking about the yeah. Middle Ages, we're just talking about France. That's, you know, not maybe quite where the, the field is these days, but it's certainly been true for, you know, like most of the 19th and 20th centuries, that if you were, were talking generically about the Middle Ages, you were really talking specifically about France. And that is true here, right? The the, the French kings, the, the Capetian dynasty uh, named after Hugh Capet, which just means hat, right? Got a cool hat of some yeah. sort, Hugh with the hat. Uh who is dealing with the negotiating, we should say, maybe the sort of real tricky and chaotic situation of the breakup of another empire. That's the Carolingian Empire, who inherits uh, one of the Carolingian thrones, but is not powerful at, at all. And his descendants certainly are not powerful for two centuries. They're actually some of the weakest uh, political rulers in France, that people with titles like Duke and Count are richer and also more powerful than them, but that it is only the fact that King carries this this religiosity, that it has this, this ideological weight behind it that is very much connected to the idea that this is an office that is sacred. It's a, it's a position that is appointed by God and also has this special relationship with the Pope. That's really the only thing that kept this dynasty going for centuries. 
and turns out to be, you know, arguably the most successful monarchical dynasty in, in European history, um, you know, d- depending on how exactly you date it, you know. 600, 600 years. I mean, yeah. 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 And I don't think the revolution got them all. So they'll be back. Still, they're still hiding somewhere in the Ile de France. I mean, I would, <laughs> I would read that book for sure. Yeah. I mean, someone has written <laughs> that right. so I can go find out what that is and read it anytime I want. But this is true in England as well, or, you know, not this exact circumstance, but uh, 1066 is, a, you know, this is an important date, 1066 and all that. That's the, the year of, uh, you know, William the Conqueror's uh, conquest of England. He's the Duke of North. Normandy, um, not called the conqueror yet because he hasn't actually conquered, but goes over the English Channel and conquers England and becomes the king of England. And this is important in this story because he does that with papal approval. He actually has like a banner that uh, Pope Alexander gives him that he, he flies um, to show that um, although there are three people claiming to be the king of England, he's just one of them. He's the one the Pope says is really actually the king. And this becomes very important for uh, English monarchy as well. Of course, English monarch still also the head of the Church of England, like, you know, today. Um, so again, another real special relationship there. And I mean, the, the figure in Germany who is both the king of Germany, but also usually calls himself the Roman emperor. Um, sometimes we now refer to them as the Holy Roman Emperor. Definitely cultivates a lot of this same ideology as well. Um, particularly in that because he holds the imperial title, can claim to be kind of um, in the the tradition of Charlemagne, even in the tradition of Constantine in terms of their role as sort of the protector of the church um, and, and the fact that they continue to be crowned emperor by the pope and so forth, um, certainly also cultivate this kind of ideology of God's anointed ruler on earth um, and as possessed of a certain sacrality as a result. But in each of these instances, uh, this special relationship with the church, the idea of of there's being something sacred about these royal or imperial offices, uh, this did not mean smooth functioning relationships between church and state. This was not some kind of alliance that was you know well functioning all the time. Each of these positions, the English king, the French king, the the German king, or the the, the you know Roman emperor, as you say, Jay. Uh, every single one of them did something to really irritate the church at some point. Uh, there's, you know, at waging, some point. <laughs> yeah, waging a war <laughs> against the, the Pope who's like raising armies and fighting the, the, the Holy Roman Emperor, the German King, or hey, French Kings actually end up kidnapping the Pope taking him out of Rome and installing him somewhere in France. And, uh, yeah. and the English, uh, English Kings do, you know, have similar activities where they just, they're often, they're, they're also put under papal interdicts because they've upset the Pope. Right. So there's actually a lot of conflict between these different seats of power and, and authority. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know how much detail we want to get into the, the, the most famous of them, of course, is referred to as the investiture conflict, which is, um, a conflict we associate between the German king or the, the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope, usually dated around 1075 um, through the early 1100s, um, and involves an emperor named Henry IV and a pope named Gregory VII. It's called the investiture conflict because ostensibly one of the key issues in this debate is the act of investiture, which is the process by which someone is turned into a bishop of the church, investing someone with the office of bishop. 
And uh, the the German kings had been very accustomed um, traditionally to being able to appoint their close allies um, into important bishoprics. And this became an important strategy for them um, to to run their kingdom, to run the empire and things like this. And Gregory VII, the pope, um, building on some of the work of his predecessors, began to argue that only members of the church should be able to invest bishops, that lay people should not be able to do this. And that was kind of the the narrow issue at at stake really was sort of a much deeper issue about the sort of proper configuration or the proper relationship between the church and the state, if you want to use that term, the the kind of cyclum, the the worldly powers of kings and emperors, people who are not part of the church. Um, and it turned into a very serious conflict between the two of them, um, which had many legacies throughout the rest of the Middle Ages. And without getting into too many details, I do think this is what when Asimov refers at the end, when Harry Seldon comes out and says, you have discovered the spiritual power, um, which is good for checking the temporal power right now, which can provide bulwark against the temporal power. I think he is evoking events like the investiture controversy, which are thought of as conflicts between the regnum and the sacerdotium, the kingdom and the priesthood, um, between the spiritual power and the temporal power. Um, that those terms right there between spiritual and temporal power is a common way in the Middle Ages of imagining the nature, um, the kind of political structure of of medieval Europe during the age of the church or what we could sometimes call Christendom, that there is a kind of power, a spiritual power that belongs to the church and a kind of temporal power that belongs to the king um, and that these should sort of remain in their respective spheres and so forth, but that very often come in conflict with each other. Um, and so Asimov here is, is evoking this idea of the kind of contest of wills between the spiritual authority of the Pope um, and the temporal authority of the King, which was a, a recurrent feature of, of political conflict in the Middle Ages. Well, when we think of the phrase church and state, which is, you know, a pretty important phrase in, in American political history and, and you know, often I would accept that. Yeah, yeah. Often frequently invoked in our political discourse. It's been less of a of an issue, I think, or you know, less of a, a topic, you know, an issue within politics uh, lately. We've got other things going on. But when we invoke that, what we are talking about is wanting to keep the church out of the affairs of the state of, of, uh, you know, the anti-establishment clause in our constitution, the American constitution being super important, right? The government won't establish a church, won't promote one religion over another. And this all grows out of the, the reformation when, different types of Christians were wielding state power and uh, using that power to persecute other types of Christians, different denominations of Christianity. And so that's a kind of fear that's embedded in our political documents, our constitution. But when medieval people are talking about this, the fear they have is the other way. It's the fear of the state interfering with the, the church. And that's what, you know, the investiture is meaning here is that why, wait, why is this, you know, politician... <laughs> appointing priests. That doesn't make any sense, except that, of course, it makes total sense if we go back to thinking about uh, something we were talking about earlier, which is to see literacy as this technology that clerics have a monopoly on, but that yet is something that government is totally dependent on. And so clerics, priests, uh, and, and deacons, also monks sometimes, are actually important 
members of like the government of the administration of the state there they have two different hats uh so to speak yeah. i mean you know and so this is where this is actually a really interesting question in political philosophy where yeah henry the fourth is saying what hold on like like that position that's vacant right there that's an important part of how i govern my kingdom i need to fill that with my person who, yeah. who actually has like the things that I need, which might be, you know, experiences and skills, but also might simply be um, about court politics. So it might just be like, you know, connections, uh, owed a favor, uh, that sort of thing. Whereas then the Pope is saying, no, 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 no. But like those positions shouldn't actually be involved in politics. Those should be holy positions. But that's yeah. not actually describing like the reality on the ground. And, and they have a war about it. Yeah, effectively, they do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, Henry the Fourth, of course, could also in saying, um, you know, I should appoint these figures could point to the, the traditions um, in which the king was God's anointed on earth um, and, and, and had a certain sacrality about him. Certainly, he could point to longstanding traditions in which the emperor was the protector and in some ways overseer. Um, of the church, this this is an idea that we don't really see much in Asimov, where the king, although has a sort of sacred quality, does not seem to be claiming any kind of oversight over the priests or anybody on Anacreon or anything like that. He uses them clearly as instruments of government. They push the buttons to raise his throne and stuff like that. But there's never any moment in which he appears to exercise authority over them or anything. Um, and that would have been a notion foreign to medieval kings um, who, above all else, were often very concerned to find ways to exercise oversight and authority over the members of the clergy within their kingdoms and to prevent the kind of intrusion of papal authority into their kingdom. Right. And and that's going back to something else that we brought up earlier in this episode, which is that Asimov here is envisioning something like the Catholic Church as it exists, let's say, around yeah. really around 1290, let's say, and coming out, though, like fully formed like that, not actually having to go through, you know, almost 1300 years of development, uh, but actually just coming out as this strong, highly centralized uh, organization, which is not at all how the, the Christian church, the medieval church develops, where there is a, you know, a pope, you know, there's a bishop of Rome who has a kind of authority um, yeah. over other bishops, but not always actual power. And there's not necessarily, in fact, there, there definitely is not a sort of central organization. Um, like there's not, you know, an org chart. There's not a, like a rank structure the way that there is today. The, the church is simply an assembly of individual churches, um, you know, yeah. urban, you know, local churches will get together with each other, you know, the representatives and decide big issues of like theology um, and operational principles and and uh, rules for dealing with, you know, uh, priests who misbehave and that sort of thing. But there's not yeah. necessarily a real strong uh, organization to that until we get really into the late Middle Ages or late into the high Middle Ages, maybe we should say. Yeah, I think that's right. And Asimov evokes this idea that there's this interesting passage on on page 96 of our edition where the 
the city council is discussing the the religion that's been created by the foundation. And, you know, they're, they're sort of saying like, well, what kind of religion is it? And the guy says, ethically, this is one of the council members. Ethically, it's fine. It scarcely varies from the various philosophies of the old empire, <laughs> high moral standards and all that. There's nothing to complain about from that viewpoint. Religion is one of the great civilizing influences of history. And in that respect, it's fulfilling. Somebody interrupts and we know that. Get to the point. Here it is. The religion, which the foundation has fostered and encouraged, mind you, is built on strictly authoritarian lines. The priesthood has so sole control of the instruments of science we have given Anacreon, but they've learned to handle those tools only empirically. They believe in this religion entirely and in the uh, spiritual value of the power they handle. So this idea here that what we have is an authoritarian religion, one built on very strict lines of authority and strict control over the sort of tenets of religion is one that we would very much associate with the, the highly institutionalized church um, of the, the, the very high and later Middle Ages. And that in some ways becomes the kind of setting for the various dissident movements that eventually culminate in the Protestant Reformation. You know, there's a lot of fodder here just to bring this back to, you know, Asimov, that he could have gone different directions with what what do you do with this papal interdict or, you know, this sort of spiritual versus temporal conflict that he's showing here. Here, you know, it is the, the form it takes is this this interdict and it's wrapped up very neatly. But he could have set the investiture conflict in space, which would have been would have been cool. Like we could have had like massive, you know, sort of civil war where, uh, you know, the foundation is attacked, but then the, you know, very devout, very pious king of one of these other kingdoms, you know, uh, it attacks Anacreon. And yeah. then we actually see that there are some, uh, some nobles in Anacreon itself who want to use this as an opportunity to maybe put their own son on the Anacreonian throne or something like that. I mean, and then now you've just got Game of Thrones in space, I guess, right? But exactly. like, you, we could have had that. And that's, it's interesting that Asimov made this choice, right? Which he very clearly made. This is, you know, he, he knows what's happening here. And one of the, you know, to, to, to extend that metaphor a little bit further or that, that, that line of potentiality um, in, in the actual investiture conflict, um, in its earliest phases, most of the bishops in the German Empire in Germany sided with the emperor, with the king against the pope, um, because, of course, most of them had been appointed by him. Most of them were closely established allies of him, and they saw the pope's intervention as impinging upon the, the 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 dignity of their own local churches and so forth. Um, and they called on uh, the Pope to resign his position, um, that, that he was sort of tearing the church apart, that he was trampling their rights underfoot, that he was seeking to claim an authority over other bishops that he should not have. And this too could have been an interesting idea that Asimov would have played with, that on some level, some of the priests on Anacreon um, maybe would have been so dedicated to this sacralized king um, that they would have, you know, sided with him in some sort of debate, you know, it wouldn't have thematically resonated with the importance of the foundation and, and with the, the strength of the foundation in some ways, but it's an interesting idea to consider. Right. Well, there, there are a couple of things going on here. I think one of them is that, you know, what Asimov is conceiving, like the whole conceit of foundation is, yep, this is going to be a retelling of the fall of Rome and then the Middle Ages and then some kind of reconstitution, you know, the Renaissance, right? We'll say, although it's going to yeah. look very different when we get to the, the end, you know, there, but that 
what he's doing is is actually saying, but there's this one person, this actually genuinely prophetic person who has seen it all, seen how bad it's going to be, and because he knows that the Middle Ages were really terrible and knows that this new Middle Ages are going to be super terrible as well, he's going to take steps to prevent that. And so he's actually the sort of prophetic figure who says, yeah, we do actually need to make sure that we come out with the church fully functional, like right from the start, because in the actual Middle Ages, the church was super important in preserving ancient culture and also preserving literacy, which becomes very important. So I'm going to make, I'm going to found this you know, encyclopedia project to do exactly that. And that's going to, you know, shorten up the time span. So that's a cool thing. It's a cool concept, although it's interesting to note that the role of foundation um, as the kind of preservation of knowledge, you know, the, the kind of repository for knowledge in the face of civilizational collapse is not at all mentioned in this section of the book, which of the novel, which is the the part where religion is discussed most explicitly to the extent that Selden seems to have a plan for religion in his stages of the regrowth of civilization. It is merely as a kind of defensive form of authority that can wield that can fend off premature incursions by these, these kingdoms and stuff like that. Um, Religion here to the extent that it's explicitly invoked spiritual authority, matters of the spirit and stuff like that is entirely concerned with power politics and entirely unconcerned with culture. Right. I think that, you know, for Asimov uh, and and maybe for Gibbon as, as well, but I think that he's got this idea that what makes the medieval church important for preserving civilization or enough civilization from the ancient world that we can actually get the Renaissance and then therefore get, you know, the awesome 20th century that Asimov is living in, that what's important there is, is the retention of some bit of knowledge, uh, but then also really the retention of the ability to learn. So literacy. So it's not just about like having knowledge copied down, having books copied down, but about education as a value and literacy as a tool there is what's important. And so, and he also seems to have this idea that the religiosity of those things is important to the preservation of those things in the middle ages, right? That, that if it weren't for the fact that these people, you know, the clerics were like, were, were sacred, that the people who had the books and the writing uh, technology were holy. Uh, if it weren't for that fact, these uncouth barbarian kings, or I don't know, let's just call them jocks, I guess, right? It's jocks yeah, and nerds yeah. here, right, is what he's seeing, yeah. right? That the nerds would have been overthrown and we would have lost all of that. So you've got to have this like divine um, uh, protection, um, divine appointment here in order to you know keep the jocks from beating up the nerds and ruining everything. Yeah, absolutely. And indeed, what is King Leopold's favorite pastime? He is definitely not a scholar. What he likes to do is go out and hunt things that are called nyaks or something. Yeah, these, yeah, yeah I, I thought maybe nyak bird. Um, I just kept thinking, you know, like Minox chewing on the power cables. But yeah, uh, exactly. Basically, yeah. I think what we're talking about there. There's one more thing to say about this before we move on, which is that I do think it's it's really important to to your point here, Jay, in, in thinking about like, well, why weren't there some of these priests who uh, sided with the the, the king or, or you know the the, the regent uh, in this moment? Uh, something that's really important here is that while all this is going on, while he's being uh, detained and giving his big speech, and also you know like staring down a loaded 
gun, uh, Hardin is using one of these radioactive halos. Ah, so, right, yes. He makes, I did want to mention this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he makes himself holy as well. Although Asimov makes a point of saying that it's not as like garish or ostentatious as what the king actually uses. Yeah, it, it's so interesting. I mean, one interesting point about the, the whole metaphor, um, or I guess analogy between um, foundationalism and um, the medieval Catholic Church is the extent to which until that moment, there doesn't actually seem to be a pope of Asimov's church. Um, there's a priesthood for sure, but Selden himself is is not a priest. He, he doesn't seem to be trained in this nuclear expertise or this nuclear know-how. There's no sense that he is a member of the priesthood, although they seem to answer to him a little bit in some ways. Um, and then, you know, so he, he seems to not, right? Nobody like bows or venerates him when he's about, nobody treats him as if he has any kind of sacral quality or anything like that. But then there is this very clever moment at the end where he puts on a, an aura, a glow as well, that had been the signs of the king's sacrality, um, which he is now sort of co-opting, right? It turns out to be a personal force field so that this nuclear pistol that Venus is wielding has no effect on him or anything. But at that key moment there, there, there is this sense given where... I said Selden earlier, but what I meant was Hardin, where Hardin is claiming um, or demonstrating that that he has this kind of authority as well that he's kind of partaking of it by he's kind of showing that he can do this as well that he can be part of this kind of sacralized um power structure as well but for that said most of the time he's just the mayor right he he's not he he doesn't preside at any rituals or anything like that he doesn't fulfill any of the kind of sacramental roles we might expect of the head of the foundationalism church. Well, and he certainly doesn't believe any of the teachings of this no, church yeah, either, right? So that, that's yeah. like a really important thing here is that we're seeing the story yeah. from his perspective where we know this whole thing is a con, that he's a con artist here. And we also know that that there are heads of the the church in each kingdom, essentially what we would call a bishop. And we get one of them. We get the Acreonian bishop comes to Terminus to meet with Hardin. And it's also extremely clear that he doesn't actually believe any of that either. That the people who are running this whole operation are secularized. They don't believe in anything that they're teaching, but the low-level priests do. And certainly, right, though, the rabble does believe this. And so it is a con. It's a it's a kind of game. And since we're always in Hardin's point of view in this story, or, or largely, right? Any any scene that Hardin is in, we're in Hardin's point of view, right? We don't yeah. see him operating in that capacity. But we do actually get a little bit of world building done in just like two or three sentences about Hardin's trip to Anacreon, where Asimov narrates that he doesn't go straight to the planet Anacreon, but he stops off on other planets in the kingdom of Anacreon and meets with uh with with priests while he's there. And then when he does get to Anacreon, he actually disguises himself so that people won't recognize him. And so I took those two things to add up to the idea that he actually does have some kind of formal position in the, the church uh, and that when he's meeting with people, he is like in that guise, but he doesn't want to be there in that capacity on Anacreon. And so that's why he's kind of in disguise there. We just don't see that narrated for us. 
Yeah, no, you're right. And and there are also, you know, as I think about it, there's also this moment where um, Venus mentions to Leopold that um, Selvar Harden is coming to Anacreon to um, celebrate the king's birthday, his coming of age birthday. And Leopold becomes like visibly frightened of Harden. Um, he, he gets re- he's, he kind of confesses to being afraid of him and stuff like this. Um, and it sort of reflects on the fact that Leppel deep down actually is kind of a believer in the galactic spirit and is worried about attacking foundation and sort of um, the, the, the kind of spiritual implications that this might have. Yeah, no, you're right that Harden does have some kind of role. And it, it's true, the the high priest on Anacreon who comes to visit Harden is also the foundation's ambassador to Anacreon. So also has a kind of governmental position under the mayor. So he clearly does have oversight or authority over the, over the church. I guess I, I find it interesting. We never see him like presiding. It's as if he has oversight over it, but doesn't participate in it. Right. It doesn't seem like he goes out and celebrates any rituals. Like when he gets to Anacreon, you know, you might think that one of his jobs there would be like what the Pope does when he's on a tour of the, the country or something, celebrate mass uh, in, in front of everybody in a highly public, highly visible way or something. There's no sense of Harden doing any of that because, again, he knows it's all a con. And the way that Asimov depicts him, you know, in his office on Terminus is, you know, really just like, uh, you know, a- any kind of corporate office circa 1940, yeah. right? That, you know, we might see in a movie. That's how that's all depicted. And so it's, it, you know, he's thinking about cigars, he's drinking brandy. It's yeah. hard to like <laughs> right. think of the Pope in that capacity, though certainly there have been Popes who have smoked cigars and had brandy as well. I'm right? sure this is absolutely true. <laughs> but but yeah. yeah, that's that's really the the, the images that, that, that all get called to, to mind. But in some ways too, I think actually Asimov's doing something really kind of sophisticated in showing us Hardin just as the the mayor, which is really to say, you know, kind of the, the constitutional monarch of Terminus, because although we tend to talk about popes, even, you know, in the Middle Ages as being the heads of this institution, the church, they also actually had to manage their secular territory, which was the city yeah, of Rome and some territory, huge amounts of territory, in fact, around it. Yeah. And it would be kind of like getting a historical novel, you know, set, say, in the 13th century about a very powerful pope, or by which I mean a pope who exercises a lot of authority over clerics uh, in, you know, England and France and Spain or you know, like, or uh, Castile, maybe we should say there. But this book actually just really shows him like managing the city of Rome where he's meeting with people about plumbing and stuff. Yeah, it's true, which, you know, is part of ruling the papal states, no doubt about yeah, it. Popes actually had meetings about the plumbing in Rome. Still do, in fact, probably. Well, actually, they probably have like an urban planner who does that stuff for them now, right? Yeah. But, you know, still, there's, there's, there were these two hats, and we're only seeing one of them until then the plot suddenly hinges on the fact that Hardin actually is kind of the pope, and people out in yeah. the provinces um, do see him that way, which is real fun. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't uh, until we just had this conversation made the connection between him going to visit all the planets and and sort of the idea of a papal itinerary touring sort of a kingdom and stopping at cities to celebrate mass and hold, you know, public rallies and stuff like this, Um, you know, similar to the Council of Clermont that 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 resulted in the first crusade. But, you know, it's kind of a similar idea. Go go out and visit all your priests um, on this itinerary. 
right? Something that, that popes don't usually do. It's a real rare thing for popes to do, in yeah. fact. So that's also another thing that makes this actually an extremely interesting episode here in Foundation. I want to talk about one more thing on this topic before we, we start wrapping up this episode, Jay, which is, you know, thinking and by, by this topic, I guess what I really mean is these these crazy nuclear halos uh, that both Hardin and Leppold have here. They are radioactive. And we're told <laughs> that, like, if you get close to Leppold while he's got this thing going on, which he does anytime he's in public, you're going to get burned. Yeah. And that's interesting. I mean, that's crazy. Like, you know, that doesn't seem like good governance uh, to, to me, but it is a kind of um, inversion of something that is actually really important to the ideology of kingship in high medieval France and England, which is that uh, to, you know, invoke Aragorn, to quote Tolkien here, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. The kings of France and England in the high Middle Ages and, and actually into early modernity claimed that they had the power to heal people who were afflicted by scrofula and, and also some other conditions and that they could heal them, you know, by touching them and, and also performing a ritual. There were like actually some pretty elaborate things they had to do. But that's the opposite of what we see here where you don't want to touch the king. It's very clever, I have to say. And, you know, this this don't touch me kind of thing. Um you know, echoes stuff like the, uh, the the scene in the Bible after Jesus's resurrection, the no limit tangere, the, the don't touch me, the kind of my body is sacrosanct, um, is not to be touched by mere mortals, while at the same time, this idea that it can afflict harm, can cause damage by touching the king is this very clever inversion of the, the tradition of the royal touch um, that can heal and, and so forth. Yeah, I think it's a really, I, you know, as I was taking my notes, um, getting ready for this, I, I actually made a, a sort of specific note about how clever this idea of these radioactive halos or radioactive auras was um, perhaps more more cleverly than any other moment, I think in this, it, it does a, a fantastic job of evoking the interplay between science and religion, um, between sort of sacrality um, and scientific thought, um, and, and in the ways in which notions of the sacred could operate um, in a in, in a sort of political sense at this moment. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a very clever idea. Um, the, the auras, the radioactive auras and the curse being pronounced upon the, the Anacreonic Navy are probably my two favorite moments, not just in this section, but probably in the whole book. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's very, very cool stuff. And, you know, I do say at the sort of top of these episodes, all three that we've done so far, you know, I just say this is a really influential book, which is not something that we've really been focusing on here, right? Our tack is, hey, we're approaching this as medievalists and we're looking at the medievalism here. But I did make a joke earlier about how like this one world building paragraph essentially lays out all of the terminology that the United Federation of Planets uses, yeah, right, in true, Star Trek. Yeah. But also here in like this stuff that's going on in the palace, this is is the entire Dune universe in a nutshell. Yeah, it's all inspired it here, right? So we, you know, it's these true. massive science fiction franchises, Dune and Star Trek, you know, the origins are, are right here, right? Asimov is so important here. These things he's doing that are just absolutely amazing. So I, I know I keep saying one more thing, like I'm Columbo or something here, but I, I really mean it this time. And then we'll, then we will get to the last item on the outline. I just in thinking about this royal touch here that, you know, this thing that exists uh, for Kings of France and England, this, this healing touch that they, they have the, 
I, I think you might you might correct me, Jay, but I, I think that still, if not the, but certainly one of the really important studies of this is um, called in English, The Royal Touch, though it's a book originally written in in French in 1924 called uh, Wa et uh, Thaumaturge. And it's written by a historian named uh, Mark Bloch, who wrote a lot of really <laughs> excellent uh, scholarship, was really important in uh, shifting uh, historical studies to something that we might call social and, and cultural history, uh, not just for like his specific field, but just kind of writ large. And he also wrote wrote a really great book about what historians actually do that is often taught in history methods classes to undergrads and and also uh, people in history graduate programs. He's a very important person uh, who worked professionally in the late 19th and uh, in the the first half of the 20th century. And what I really want to do here, though, is simply say that although he published this book in 1924, Mark Bloch died in 1944, which is to say two years after... uh, Asimov published the the story that we're talking about now, but a little bit before this gets reworked into the the novel. So he's contemporary to Asimov. Uh, Mark Bloch is French. He died in 1944, right? So that's World War II, which is what's happening yep. when Asimov is writing these stories. He's actually involved in the war effort as he's writing these stories. Mark Bloch died as a member of the French resistance. He was executed by Nazis. And I just wanted to point that out here just to just to remember that we should think about Asimov in this context as as well. That, you know, we could actually, as I was saying earlier about, you know, putting these two important speeches here as a cinematic montage, you know, we could do that with what Mark Bloch and Isaac Asimov are up to in 1944 as well, both waging war against the the Nazis and also thinking about the Middle Ages. Yeah, it will be very interesting to see. I, I'm glad you brought this up. Um, of course, Mark Bloch, one of the, the the hero figures, I think, for a lot of medieval historians um, and whose royal touch continues to be a book that I think should be read um, by by all medieval historians as a, you know, his magnum opus feudal society in some ways, you know, we read more as a, a kind of artifact of scholarship at this point than a work of scholarship. But the royal touch is, is a wonderful study. But to think about th- this context um, and of of World War II for both Asimov and Mark Bloch's work, it will be interesting to see what the kind of iconography is used in the in the television adaption um, for, say, the the Anacreon Navy, um, for the the kind of warships and stuff like this. We know that sci-fi epics that take place in space love to play with their kind of Nazi imagery and stuff. We can think of campy, terrible films like Starship Troopers, which is, you know, weird, maybe Nazis against space bugs um, and stuff like this. And it'll be very interesting to see if this this kind of context is played with at all uh, in, in how in, in just the, the visual structuring uh, of the uh, how this is visualized um, as a series. Well, especially if we're, we're going back to something we talked about at the beginning of the episode, which is that, uh, hey, these uh, Anacreonian kings are German. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. King Leopold. I mean, come on. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, that, that they'd be more than willing to play with that kind of imagery and so forth. And, and are the, you know, the successors to to the empire to 
the Reich, if we will. Yeah. Right. And, and are clearly the bad guys here, or at least, you know, Venus is the bad guy. So yeah, we'll, we'll see how that's portrayed. That will be something that's going to be very interesting to think about. And uh, yeah, Starship Troopers, a totally campy film. I just want to say that uh, uh, in January on this show on ATOS, there's going to be three episodes that uh, Brandon and I did on uh, Starship Troopers, the novel. Uh, there oh. is an instance, we didn't go do an episode on the film. Uh, we might do that. Maybe we'll just have a, I don't know, do a sort of movie TV club here on ATOS. Oh and talk about these adaptations at some point. All right. There's one last thing that we should talk about before we close out today. And that is this business at the end when Harry Seldon appears again with you know more prophetic words. And what he says is that what has just happened, everything you know we've just read, we the readers have just read, all of that is that the foundation has entered a stage in the development of a civilization in which the spiritual power is more powerful than the temporal power. Uh, these are both proper nouns, uh, spiritual power, temporal power, both capitalized. But he also cautions them that this stage that they're at, this can't last forever, and that it is at any rate only a kind of defensive power because eventually there is going to be a force called nationalism. And this is going to grow up, in fact, because of the wielding of spiritual power. It's going to grow up in response to and reaction to the spiritual power. And it is itself stronger on the defensive even than spiritual power is. And we plan on spending more time on this when we're doing kind of our, our wrap up of the, the book as a whole, because this is a pretty big deal. And we actually think it's going to make more sense when we've got the whole picture to, to bring to bear on this issue of like, you know, stages of history and, and so on. Uh, and we're going to get to uh, nationalism next time, especially. So we don't want to do too much with this right now. But Jay, because of a conversation that we were having off mic, I know that you had a really great observation about this, something that had not occurred to me. And I think we should use that to close out our, our coverage of part three. Well, and then the interesting thing about the way in which he jumped here from kind of this Christendom evocation under the spiritual power up through up through the formation of nation states and so forth is that what he's done there is actually adopt a progression that in some ways is, is fairly recent as a historical phenomenon, which is to say when most people think of the end of the Middle Ages in popular culture, I think they point to the Renaissance. The Italian Renaissance is sort of a cultural phenomenon. And I, th I think increasingly now a lot of historians would point to, to the Protestant Reformation as the kind of thing that best signals the end of whatever era we want to call the Middle Ages or something like that, that the Renaissance almost has more continuity with the Middle Ages in a lot of ways. And it's the Protestant Reformation's undoing of Christendom that is the real moment of transition in a lot of ways. And of course, the Protestant Reformation and the, the wars of religion are what kind of set the stage for the emergence of nationality and for the emergence of sovereign states as the, 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 the key form of community in Europe and stuff like this. And so in a way here, the decision to essentially elide the Renaissance, to, to skip the Renaissance, to not even bother with this idea, but instead to focus on forms of political community, moving from this kind of spiritually dominated religious community to these kind of nation states um, is, is quite a good one, almost a prescient one in some ways. Yeah, that's a great observation. I, I had not made that, but you're right. 
Asimov is maybe you know ahead of the game by like two generations here in terms of thinking about what is it that marks the end of the Middle Ages is is not the rebirth of classical learning from antiquity or you know really awesome painting, but yeah. is in fact actually the reconfiguration of political systems that's only possible because of the breakup of the the church, and that yeah that's a really great point because I think yeah scholars contemporary to him would actually disagree. This is actually really the height of Renaissance studies. Here. Like the, the 1920s, yeah. 1930s, 1940s is really the height of Renaissance studies. But also, that's actually the thing that Asimov starts with in part one is saying the thing we need to do is preserve knowledge yeah, so that we can true. have a Renaissance. That's a good point. Yeah. But then he says we don't knew that that was always a sham all along, right? <laughs> right. The preservation of knowledge. Yeah. yeah is that's fake. right. Exactly. Okay. That's so interesting about Harry Zeldin is that he thinks that the thing that will motivate people into getting on board with this project is called. Culture, but that's not actually what he's up to at all. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of the uh, who really cares about the Renaissance approach to history. Like, was the Italian Renaissance all that important, actually? <laughs> right. Well, and that uh, one of the key members of this podcast network has a PhD in Renaissance Italian literature. So uh, maybe uh, maybe we should have her on for a fight. It's about great. Exactly I love the this. Italian Renaissance. <laughs> Yeah. Well, one. Well, I will say one last thing here, which is just crazy speculation that I know is not true. Well, I, I may not know is true, but this thinking this way, right, where we're just seeing Selden as you know pulling a, a con, uh, tricking people into joining up this organization and having something you know really kind of Machiavellian or perhaps Bismarckian in mind here, right? Like he's mm, really interested yeah. in in actual power rather than culture. Um, is he? cryogenically frozen somewhere and is going to come back actually as like the resurrection of this great prophet and take over. That'd be amazing. Yeah. I don't think that's actually what happens, but that's a, that's a series that someone could write. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We could definitely write that the foundation revisited where, where Harry Seldon emerges from some cryo tank or something and discovers that everything has gone wrong and this wasn't what he planned at all. (laughs) Yeah, and it's actually like a dystopic nightmare that he's now in. He's like, he's confronted with the limits of his own knowledge and realizes that psychohistory was a fatally flawed discipline all along and what do I do now? Oh man, I would read this bit of uh, literary speculative fiction about Harry Seldon's post-cryogenic ennui. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely amazing. What happened to my university of 10,000 faculty members that I founded in a week? Why? Isn't that the model for the future? Yeah, a question we're all asking ourselves all what the time. What is a mooc? <laughs> well, that's uh, that is a great writing prompt. We also had this writing prompt earlier too about uh, you know someone should please go write uh, a you know do a retelling of the investiture conflict except in space. I think you and I would be the biggest cheerleaders for for that yeah, for sure. We would so, enjoy this. I uh, hope someone yeah. will take us up on on both of these writing prompts. But I think if we are trying to encourage people to uh, go write their own science fiction novels. I think we are done talking about this one, at least for this episode. So that is going to do it for now. I'm Glenn McDorman. Jay, again, thanks so much for joining me in uh, what I guess we could describe as my attempt to start a new religion based around uh, the love of speculative fiction novels. Uh, Are you brainwashing me into being a priest right now, Glenn? I mean, you can be cynical and know that it's all a con if you want. You're you're on the inside (laughs) here. (laughs) Nice. Thank you. (laughs) And thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Well, and I'll say again to listeners that if you want to hear Jay talk more specifically about his own research, you can check out my medieval history podcast called Agnes. I had Jay on as a guest a few years ago. Uh, We threw out a lot here and had, I think, a lot more questions than we had answers this time. So we also hope that listeners will come talk with us about part three of 
Foundation at our forum on claytemplemedia.com or on our subreddit. Uh, you can also follow the network on Twitter. We're at Clay Temple Media, and you can tweet at us or DM us there as well. And we'll say here, too, that we don't actually quite know what we're up to yet with the end of this book, which is really just to say that we are planning to do parts four and five as a single episode. Um, but given that we've also taken like seven hours to talk about 120 pages, it's possible that the next 80 pages might not fit into a single episode. So we will see if that's really feasible once we get into them. But in any case, we will be back with another episode, uh, possibly the final episode in just a few days. And until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. 